Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Deep Dye interview series here at Real Vision. My name is Andreas Steno. I'm the senior host here at Real Vision, and we send to you live hot on the heels of the Jackson Hole Conference in Wyoming this weekend. We're in tremendous company this uh, afternoon to assess the outlook for the Fed Reserve after this conference. First of all, it is my utmost pleasure to welcome Dennis Lockhart, former member of the Federal Global Market Committee and former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. It's a pleasure to host you, Mr. Lockhart. Thank you, Andreas. Good to be with you. And uh, secondly, we also have the tremendous Danielle DiMartino Booth of QI Research with us again on the platform. Always a great pleasure to host you, Danielle. And uh, you're one of the very best watchers of the Fed out there. So thank you for joining us. Good to be with you again. Thank you for having me. Guys, first of all, uh, we're recording hot on the heels on this Jackson Hole Conference. I'd like to start with you, Mr. Lockhart. How important is this Jackson Hole Conference to the Federal Open Market Committee? Well, it's potentially important because it gives the chair every year an opportunity to provide some more guidance if that's the desire or to at least say something important. Um, sometimes the chair chooses to talk on a different subject and not necessarily provide a lot of information, but it is an opportunity to clarify the thinking of the committee. I think it's important to emphasize that the chair is speaking for the committee. He would not probably get too far outside a consensus of the committee. So did he say anything of importance in you, uh, your view, Mr. Lockhart, over the past weekend here? Certainly said a lot of things of, import, of importance, but I would, I, I would say that there was not a lot of new information in this speech. He repeated and reinforced many of the themes that we've heard before. And uh, in terms of you know, concrete guidance, I think for the most part, uh, he was uh, noncommittal. Danielle, I'd like to, to bring in your opinion on the Jackson Hole Conference as well. What made the biggest impression uh, on you uh, from Powell's speech uh, during the Jackson Hole conference here? Well, I think my, my biggest takeaway, I had, my, my, I had two, big, two big takeaways. The first of which was 2% is not going anywhere. So there had been, um, there'd been some rather loud advocacy to raising the inflation target to 3%. And, uh, and he was very pointed uh, and resolute in saying that you know until the job is done entails the number two 
and and not three. Do, do I really think he'll split hairs if if it's very glaringly obvious that they're getting close to that two percent target? No, I don't. But what he did refuse was any idea uh, that some have pressed him on about raising the inflation target. And hats off to him for that. Uh, and the other, my other biggest takeaway was that there was absolutely no mention of the balance sheet. And there is there is an active balance sheet policy going on as Chair Powell wishes for it to be in the background. But, you know, every Friday afternoon after the market closes, the Fed releases its weekly H8 report and it shows that other uh, other deposits at U.S. Commercial Bank uh, on on their liability side have really dwindled down to a a record low level. Uh, The pace has accelerated since the debt ceiling was resolved. And we've seen that manifest uh, late July into August in a large pickup in in company bankruptcies and and in and in firm closures. So there is there is a liquidity lever that's being uh, utilized at the Federal Reserve, but nobody really talks about it. And I think that that suits Chair Powell. I'd like to bring in you, uh, um, Mr. Lockhart, on this topic of the balance sheet as well, because uh, I think Janet Yellen famously said that bringing down the size of the balance sheet is as boring as to watch paint dry. So Mm -hmm. how important is the balance sheet policy for the overall tightness of monetary policy in your view? There have been a lot of academic studies on that question Mm -hmm. and how many basis points uh, X amount of balance sheet shrinkage amounts to. Um, In my uh, in my experience, at least, uh, nobody came up with an absolutely conclusive number. It's an important policy because I think the committee feels they simply have to get the balance sheet down. And what I find interesting in the most recent discussion, although it did not uh, come up in in Powell's speech uh, last Friday, is the notion that was actually put forth first by Lori Logan of the Dallas Fed, that they might continue to shrink the balance sheet even after starting rate cuts, meaning two tools of policy are arguably going in opposite directions. That discussion has continued and it was actually in the last minutes of the July meeting. So it's an interesting development that they feel so strongly about the balance sheet that they wouldn't pause that program if they began to cut rates. Daniel, how do you rank the interest rate policy, the Fed funds policy versus the balance sheet policy in terms of repercussions for the economy and uh, and financial markets? Well, I think right now the idea of persistence in, in a tight stance, uh, if we're talking about at some point in, in 2024, because there's still about a 50% probability that before 2023 is out that we will see one more 25 basis point rate hike. But I think that given where rates are right now on an absolute level, that at the margin, that small of another rate hike is really not going to make that much of a difference. What will to companies that need to borrow? There was a there was a furniture manufacturer in North Carolina that on Saturday simply announced these three factories are closing. Everybody who's working, working remotely need not uh, show up at work on Monday, and the entire company just vanished overnight into liquidation. And the reason was they couldn't secure the financing. So uh, the longer that Powell is able to maintain an a higher level of rates relative to what preceded, which was 
I mean, let, let's let's get real. Zero interest rate policy or having extremely low interest rates was something that that existed for a generation at the Fed. But the longer that higher actual rates persist, I think the more difficult it's going to be. The higher ramping up we're going to see in in the default rate cycle. But if I could dovetail onto something that, that Dennis just mentioned, it would be that there is a silver lining in theory if the Fed starts to lower interest rates while it continues to reduce the size of its balance sheet, and that's that they're very far behind in terms of the pace at which they want it to reduce their mortgage-backed securities holdings. And if, in theory, you could take that level of interest rates down by a percentage point or two percentage points or two and a half percentage points, that's how much Powell used the last time he started lowering interest rates before he got to the zero bound. Of course, he could stop at a higher level than before. I think that that is, that is manna to the gods of central banks, the idea that they've got enough latitude to not return to the zero bound. I think that that makes central bankers inherently more independent. But if they can bring rates down enough to accelerate prepayment speeds, even if they do stop reducing their treasury holdings, they can certainly begin to play a little bit of catch up with reducing the size of that mortgage-backed securities portfolio. It's a very good point, Danielle. Dennis, um, if we look at Paul's rhetoric uh, in this speech at Jackson Hole, he, he used the phrase risk management considerations quite a few times during the speech. Uh, and to me, uh, this is sort of uh, him trying to balance the risks of overdoing it versus the risks of underdoing it versus the inflation target. So how do you read the choice of words when he starts talking about risk management related to monetary policy? Well, the way that term is used is really to suggest that, that – uh, They'll be extremely attentive to any signals in the economy that that uh, the, the policy has has created problems that are costly. And uh, having said that, I I think this committee believes that the costs of uh, an overshoot, given that they can correct that relatively quickly, are probably uh, less than the costs of undershooting and ending up in a stop-start pattern that uh, particularly creates uh, turmoil in, in financial conditions and creates a, a lot of ripple effects through the economy. But overall, the, the term risk management means that they're making decisions meeting by meeting. That's something we've heard before, and uh, it's going to be based on the data. And as they read the data, they'll decide what they're, they're going to do, and they'll be very careful as they go along. And I thought that was one of the themes of his speech. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Danielle, was this speech the sort of sort of ultimate end to forward guidance? There is no forward guidance left, right? Uh, I, you know, I would completely concur with what Dennis just said. Mm. I, um, I, I don't. I, I think they're trying to communicate that they don't want to guide mm. you forward. That they truly want to be 
data dependent. We're at such uh, we're at such a fragile juncture here. We're starting to see the layoff cycle pick up. We've got 48 of the 51 states with rising continuing uh, jobless claims. That means that they have to be very nimble for an unemployment rate shock at this juncture, even though the unemployment rate remains at the lowest since May of 1969. But, but the word that Dennis chose to, to use, attentive, that's really where they need to be right now because so few uh, of the macroeconomic indicators that would have otherwise reacted by now to monetary policy, the delta from zero to where we are now, uh, so few have reacted in part because there's this massive fiscal offset and money that the federal government has continued uh, to, to place into the U.S. economy such that there are so many moving pieces. The Fed needs to have no forward guidance and the Fed needs to be nimble and, and indeed attentive to the data as, as they're released. Mr. Lockhart, I'd like to, to ask you about um, the nowcast model of Atlanta Fed. Uh, I know you're the former president of, uh, say, Atlanta Fed, and uh, the nowcast model of Atlanta Fed currently suggests that the economy is running extremely hot during the third quarter. What's your assessment of the growth temperature right now as we speak in the U.S. economy? Well, first, let me explain what that now cast is. It's basically um, the accumulation of data that mimics the calculation of a GDP report and it's done for the current quarter. Um, and there's no human judgment involved. It's just that as the data come in, they're, they're put into an algorithm and they calculate sort of a run rate, what the quarter is looking like. Mm. For the reasons that early in a quarter, you don't have much data, I don't pay any attention to it until I get to the midpoint of the quarter. We're now past the midpoint of the quarter. And in the last month of the quarter, in this case, September, you can begin to take the number seriously. The last time I looked, the number was 5.8% oh. annualized growth in the third quarter. And that tells me that the economy, the impulse in the economy is very strong, growth impulse. and. Uh, even, even if it were half of 5.8%, it would still be a pretty strongly growing above trend uh, growth rate uh, in the broad economy. And that is to some degree um, frustrating, I think, the committee, because they continue to believe, and probably correctly, that they're going to have to slow the economy to get the rate, the inflation rate down to 2%. Danielle, um, I, I typically love your outspoken nature, so I'd like to ask you about this nowcast model of the Atlanta Fed as well. Do you find it fair to assume that the U.S. economy is currently growing above trend? So this is a pretty difficult question for mm. me, and 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 I do follow more than one of of, of, of the nowcast. Of course, the St. Louis Fed is at zero point four six right now, um, so the 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 delta between those two is, is quite wide. Um, a gentleman by the name of Ben Herzon, originally at Macroeconomic Advisors, which was then bought out by IHS Market, which was subsequently bought out by S&P Global, uh, he pretty much invented the GDP model on the sell side. And it's and so he, everybody who is in my old world of, of sell side investment banks has kind of followed Ben's 
model. And so I, I tend to I tend to stick with Ben and where he is. He meticulously follows every single things that you would never find on the Bloomberg economic calendar. He incorporates them all into his model. Right now he's about 2.3 percent um, for the, the for the third quarter or for his third quarter estimate. And um, a lot of that has to do with uh, assumptions about inventory rebuilding going into the third quarter because destocking has been so much more um, aggressive than what a lot of models had been assuming as inputs. So uh, very fluid right now. And uh, and we have to bear in mind, again, one program of the federal government has pumped $300 billion in cash into the pockets of high net worth individuals in the last 12 months. That That's a lot of money. There's still a lot of stimulus that is going on. And it helps explain why higher end consumption through the University of Michigan, as well as the wealth effect of a stock market that is highly resilient, uh, is, is powering the consumption of the top quintile earners of the nation who are responsible for 40 percent um, of, of spending. That one little cohort is 7 percent of global GDP. Uh, and right now they really are enjoying a, a robust uh, robust gains in their home prices, robust gains in their stock market portfolios, in addition to being on the receiving end of a massive stimulus program, care of Uncle Sam. So um, lots of moving pieces. But again, I you, you get the sensation that something at some point is going to give unless all of these companies going away, vanishing, going bankrupt, absolutely have no macroeconomic impact, which it, that's hard for me to see. Mr. Lockhart, given your uh, experience uh, in the committee, what are the pros and cons of signaling a uh, rate hike pause now? Uh, the market has sort of sniffed out this pause. If you look at the market pricing, we're at least close to the peak now. So what are the pros and cons of actually explicitly signaling such a pause, say, in the quarters ahead? Well, first, let me say, I don't think I heard a pause signal, no. frankly. Um, I thought uh, Powell's noncommittal. I thought he said effectively, we don't know yet what we're going to do in the in future meetings because we don't know what the data is that's going to guide us in future meetings. We may have to raise rates further because this economy is running hot or strong, and I think that's what the committee believes is going on. Uh, but we may not uh, because there are a lot of other factors at work. And so I didn't hear a pause. I do think maybe a skip is in the cards simply because. Um, they they increased in July. Uh, they're sort of on a pace of every other meeting. So it would be very convenient in September to just continue with that pace. It buys them another few weeks to size up what needs to be done. But let me come back to the point. I read the speech word for word. I, mm. You know, I, 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 I taped it and listened to it. I didn't hear any indication of a pause, meaning several meetings of no uh, policy action. Dennis, as far as I remember, you entered the committee in March 2007, uh, right around the pause ahead of the great financial crisis. Does anything around the current outlook feel reminiscent to you of the 2007 outlook where the Federal Reserve decided to pause interest rate hike for a prolonged period of time? Well, my my memory of the history, and it's it's my memory is pretty vivid because it was pretty uh, exciting times to be on the <laughs> Federal Open Market Committee, is that uh, we had actually started at a Fed funds rate of over five percent, 
and had started the process in 2007 of bringing it down, accelerated that at the beginning of 2008 and reached the zero bound in December of 2008 in a steady march downward in response to the financial crisis. Uh, I think these circumstances are quite different from, from that. And uh, the, if, you, if you wanna call the decline in rates a pause in increasing rates, that is what it was, but it really was a, a, uh, a march to zero that took mm. place from late 2007 through the calendar year 2008. Danielle, I'd like your take on the question of pros and cons of actually pausing interest rate hikes here. You mentioned the liquidity issues facing um, U.S. corporates, but what do you make of this question of pausing here? Is it feasible to pause here from an economic perspective? Well, you know, as, as Dennis describes it and, and Tom Honig and his successor, Esther George, she wrote a very good paper uh, at the Fed uh, last year before, before she uh, retired. And I think advocating for there to be, uh, you know, a, a, a wider cadence in between rate hikes is, is perfectly legitimate and should not signal to the market. And in fact, if you look out again between now and the end of 2023, so we're talking about the potential for the November or the December F1, December typically very unusual um, to, to raise rates. That's why I think it, your, your probabilities are stacked at that November meeting. But that's when you have the highest probability for another quarter point hike. Now, it's this whole separate question if you're getting into money supply and if you're getting into liquidity issues. Because again, even though they're, 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 they're parallel policy levers, one certainly does affect the other. And, and of course the balance sheet shrinkage, is, it's, it's a great mystery because we, we don't know on the aftermath of central bank balance sheets globally going from five to 25 trillion what it's going to take in terms of liquidity depletion to have the same effect as that which brought about the events uh, 2018 into 2019. It, it's a decidedly different backdrop. We've seen global central bank balance sheets decrease by $3 trillion, but we certainly haven't seen any kind of systemic risk start to become unleashed as we did uh, when the Fed had to stop in with their not QE measures, stopgap measures uh, a few years back. Mr. Lockhart, I'd, I'd like to bring uh, your expertise um, in on this topic of the inflation target in the U.S. Uh, some pondered ahead of the Jackson Hole conference that the inflation target could be up for debate, um, whether 2% is the right target after all, is obviously something that can be debated or can be discussed. Is it something you find relevant for the outlook for the Federal Reserve, say over the next five to 10 years, whether 2% is the right target variable or not? Well, as has already been mentioned, Chair Powell took it off the table pretty, pretty conclusively, I think. And uh, that has been what you know, my view of the subject that it's uh, the 2% target is not going to be adjusted because, because of economic circumstances that could be transitory or they could be more structural in nature. That's not to say that the issue won't be discussed again. It's not to say that that with a new chair at some point, you might not find it raised as a question. But for this this Fed, the, the Powell Fed, 
uh, I don't believe you're going to see any change in the target per se. Now, some of the members of the committee can very well talk more in a range and therefore, you know, add a little bit above 2% as being in an acceptable zone. And I think you may see that in the rhetoric of some of the committee members, but as an official inflation target of the U.S. Central Bank, it is 2% and I don't see it changing. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. If we look at the details of the current inflation in the U.S., if we set aside shelter costs, inflation is actually running very close to zero, both in CPI terms and in the official inflation target uh, PCE terms. So what do you make of that, uh, Dennis Lockhart? It, is it relevant to look at inflation outside of housing, given the leads and lacks in housing space relative to inflation pressures? You know, this this gets at a question of you know, what is it that they are actually looking at when they're talking about inflation? And I, I do find it, and even when I was a policymaker, found it to be a, a somewhat frustrating discussion because they're really trying to get a sense of the underlying, very broad inflationary or de disinflationary bias in the economy. And that underlying inflation rate is sort of an elusive concept in some respect. Uh, you cannot get at it by just looking at core PCE, for example, or headline CPI or any single indicator. You only get at it by looking at a dashboard, which might have 20 to 25 different indicators or cuts of the most recent inflation data. And then you have to deal with the question of month-to-month -month noise and transitory elements that are in the inflation picture. So determining that underlying picture is not easy. It's, it's difficult and different members of the committee may approach that differently. Having said all that, I think the committee believes that the underlying inflationary pressures broadly, uh, and that includes goods and includes shelter as well as non-shelter services, uh, still are elevated and still are uh, well above where they want it to be, something that resembles 2%. So I think that's the important thing, what the committee believes to be the situation. Danielle, what's your take on this discussion on the inflation target and also the subcomponents of the inflation measure? Do you find shelter to be a relevant part of the inflation basket? And do you think the Federal Open Market Committee will be willing to discuss this inflation target of 2%? Well, I, um, I, I concur with Dennis. I don't think that this Federal Reserve is, I don't, I don't think that the 2% versus 3% discussion is on the table the same way I don't think a central bank digital currency is on the table for this Fed. There are just certain things, or climate change, for example. There are just certain things that you can tell that philosophically Jay Powell's not, it's not on his watch. They're not going to be subjects that are brought up on his watch. I, I do happen, however, to think that, that shelter should definitely go into the construct of thinking, because when you think of shelter, uh, there are so many different 
other aspects of uh, inflation inputs that are affected by whether or not there's dynamism and movement in the market from one home to another or from one apartment to another. Uh, so and it is a good 40% of the CPI. Um, I, I completely understand where Powell is coming from by trying to look at services net of. Uh, net up shelter and but of course that metric though is is very very steady and it has been very very steady historically it's a little bit elevated beyond where it was but in terms of it ever turning negative you'd have to only go, go to the one um, just the one time stamp of, of the great financial crisis that's it no other one exists um so in other words you'd really have to as my old mentor harvey rosenblum used to say you'd have to really have the peanut butter hit the fan uh, to see core net of shelter really, really flash any kind of red deflationary signal. Um, but but I think that I think the one thing that the committee does have to be attentive to, we've had 1.2 million apartment units come online in the last three years. We have another million units coming online between now and the end of 2025. We're building single family homes and apartments multifamily at the fastest pace since the 1970s, but our our, our population's not growing as it did when the baby boomers were all coming of age. So I, I think I, I think we have to be attentive in the coming 12, 18 months that all of a sudden there's not too much of a focus on shelter prices coming down too rapidly. Uh, and that pendulum swinging too far, as is often the case with mean reversion. You get a little bit of a, an over movement on one side and, and, and it swings back too far on the other as well. So uh, inflation is going to be very fluid subject, I think, going forward. So it's going to keep us all on our toes. We need that. I'd like to shift gears and move the discussion towards whether 2% is within reach for the Federal Reserve, say, over the next two, three years here. Danielle, I'd like to start with you. If you look at forward-looking indicators right now, uh, also considering the stickiness of this shelter component of the inflation basket, is it even feasible to return inflation to the 2% target over, say, one, two years from now? Well, I, I think it is because the United States economy does not exist in a vacuum. So to suggest that the third largest exporting nation in the world, Germany, is in recession, they've just had some revisions that have given them a third consecutive quarter of, of contraction. We, we see what's happening in China. China's exporting deflation. I don't think that we can discount that effect. Can we quantify it? Well, heavens no. But but I don't think by by the same regard that we can dismiss what's happening in, in China and the fact that it looks as if the Chinese government right now has the sufficient stimulus to help their domestic economy, but not the world at large, as was the case with uh, the most recently, the 2015-2016 industrial recession. So we're not going to have some large commodity super cycle break out right now because of what's happening in China. And that's why we're seeing West Texas Intermediate below $80 today and two weeks in a row. Global demand is what I'm saying is going to play into what happens. 40% of US uh, S&P 500 components, they, they, they get their revenues overseas. Uh, so we have to be um, mindful that the idea, every time the economics community, mostly on the sell side, says, oh, it's a great decoupling. It, well, we've heard this before. And decouplings tend to last for as, about as long as the narrative lasts. And then it goes away again because we are a globally connected, interdependent economy. Mr. Lockhart, I'd like to pick your brain on how important the global cycle is for the projections within the Federal Reserve. If China is in a recession, um, if Germany is in a recession, how important is it to the 
forecasts of the committee, um, given your experience from the committee? Important, noteworthy, but not decisive. Yeah. Um, uh, the United States economy, relatively speaking, is insulated from, from uh, some of the global pressures, at least more than a lot of other economies. Germany was mentioned by Danielle. Um, many of the more export-oriented economies simply, uh, they're, they're, uh, the heart of those economies beat at the pulse of the global economy. Not so much in the United States. Uh, the principal thing that the committee looks at is net exports. Net exports is what, less than 15% of the, of the GDP of the country. The United States simply enjoys a bit more insulation from what's going on economically around the rest of the world than many other countries. Danielle, if we look at the path ahead for the Federal Reserve, one question obviously relates to the Fed funds policy, but another question relates to the balance sheet policy. Uh, and earlier today, I'm born and raised as a European, so I watched the European data um, avidly, and we received another set of abysmal um, numbers from the European money growth. And it's sort of resembles the growth that we've seen in M1, M2, and M3 measures in the US. I think M3 is, is actually not existent anymore in the US, but never mind. Uh, the outset of this discussion is that the money growth is actually declining. So what do you make of a decline, both in nominal and real terms, in the amount of dollars and euros and renminbis around in the global economy? So, so we know that, um, you know, we, we've just come off of a very dramatic BRICS conference, and, mm. but at the end of the day, you know, and they're talking about including Saudi Arabia, you know, what denomination did Saudi Arabia borrow in when it had a sovereign debt sale recently? Dollars. Um, so a shortage of dollars, liquidity depletion. Again, central banks have reduced the size of their balance sheet in aggregate by $3 trillion dollars. These leave marks. You know, the Federal Reserve, it slowed its Powell wisely did so. He slowed the pace of quantitative tightening around the two months of the debt ceiling being resolved here in the United States so as not to act, you know, as an even bigger irritant uh, in, in, in the financial system. I, I take my hat off to him for doing that. But boy, when July hit, we took right back off. And, you know, we, we again, we, we, you can watch it on a weekly basis in the Fed's H8. Liquidity is coming out of the system. M2 stopped contracting at a deeper and deeper level uh, in May and June, but then it picked right back up when we got the delayed, uh, July data going. It, it came down even further. Uh, you know, I'm uh, I, I'm not a, a fan of saying that 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 money in circulation and money growth in general and and liquidity is irrelevant because even though it's not part of the formal construct of monetary policy making in the United States. I, I think that it definitely manifests in in the bankruptcy cycle, in the default cycle, in the areas of the financial system that we are seeing affected by depleting liquidity. But again, you know what we saw in 2018 appeared to be potentially systemic. You know, did Japanese banks having 40% of their assets in U United States collateralized lo uh, loan obligations was that problematic? At the time, it certainly was, and Powell saw that. 
But right now we've been able to sit back and watch a bankruptcy cycle and a default cycle um, begin to be undertaken. And yet we haven't seen anything of a Lehman-esque moment or, or anything systemic in nature. But yeah, I think, I think we have to be highly attentive to the fact that we haven't seen M2 decline at this pace since 1937. I mean, you, you can try and forget about history, but uh, that typically does not bode well for you. Mr. Lockhart, what do you make of this money growth variable? We saw an, a tremendous growth in both M1, M2 and M3 measures across the globe during the early innings of the pandemic. And some warned central banks that this could be a leading indicator of inflation pressure. So was this an overlooked forward-looking indicator of inflation pressures? You know, I have to say I'm 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 a big agnostic on the question of the influence of of various measures of monetary aggregates and money uh, money growth. What we do know, of course, is that the monetary base in dollars is shrinking. That's clear. That's the, the policy of the Fed. How that then actually influences broad money in the economy and how that broad money with, uh, with uh, velocity associated with it influences economic activity is more of a mystery to me, quite frankly, and, and I think to, to many economists. In the 10 years I was on the committee, at every meeting, we had the, the monetary uh, aggregate measures, M1, M2, and so forth, reported. And then there was virtually no discussion of money supply, even though everyone at the table had learned and when they took economics in university, uh, they had learned at the feet of Milton Friedman that that was terribly important. But, the, you know, I don't think it, it be, has become or it is any longer a at least a first order consideration in setting policy. Very interesting, Dennis. Danielle, if we, if we look at these M1 and M2 measures, uh, we obviously have both nominal and real declines in these broad money measures, both in dollars, in euros, in Japanese yens, in Chinese yuans, etc. How important is this distinction between nominal and real when we look at the money supply? Is it even more important that the money supply is growing when we have a period of inflation? So I think that I think that when you get to the discussion and you're trying to tease out what's mm. more important, nominal or real, I think most people would say, for heaven's sake, real. Um, and 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 now that we're seeing, uh, yeah, but by the same token, now we're also seeing real positive wage growth. Uh, and, and that's, it's, it's, it's a separate discussion, but I'm just saying there are two sides to every coin. Mm. So there, there are beneficiaries by the same token. But once you get to the level of real interest rates being being positive, once you get to the level of real money growth being negative, then again, that's why I think that the difference, we, we saw a, a decided turn. It was, it was very distinct. Uh, Bloomberg has a daily tally of bankruptcies of companies that are 50 million or more in liabilities. For the month of July, that number was 10. It appeared that everything was completely calming down. We're at 30 right now for the month of, of August. And we saw the monetary aggregates turn and turn hard when we went from July into August. And so though it's difficult to identify uh, cause and effect, I think that it certainly isn't the tooth fairy that made things, once we got positive real interest rates, that made things accelerate uh, 
uh, to the downside in the default rate cycle. Mr. Lockhart, if we look at the volatility in these nominal and real measures of money supply, we're now at a juncture where it looks kind of reminiscent of the 70s and early 80s, or maybe even five decades further back, if we listen to Danielle. Is there anything in the current data that reminds you of decades, say four or five decades ago, when it comes to these um, measures of money growth? You know, uh, Andreas, I'm just too fuzzy on the history. Mm. Uh, so I really don't have a good answer for you, yeah, quite fair. frankly. I mean, the, my general take is that the current circumstances are novel mm. um, and that, uh, you know, you look at history as some indicator of what might happen and what the ramifications of, of a particular policy stance may be, but uh, you don't just take history as something that's going to repeat itself. And I do think uh, a, an inflationary cycle that came out of a public health shock that was global in nature, that closed down the US economy for some period of time and created pent up demand. All of those circumstances in my mind are somewhat novel and they're related to something that actually had not happened before and that is a pandemic. So asking the same question as the Jackson Hole conference in Wyoming to, to you, Dennis, is there any evidence at this juncture that something has structurally changed when it comes to the inflation and growth outlook of the uh, United States? I am open to that argument and I've mm. been paying attention to the argument that there are some structural developments that are making perhaps the era that we're entering or already in a, a one with an inflationary bias as opposed to what I experienced for the, my time in, in, in the Fed, which was a, a market disinflationary bias. And some of those structural elements relate to demographics, some relate to supply side questions. Um, people I respect who are very thoughtful are making the argument that we may be in the era of uh, supply shortages and therefore a net inflationary uh, set of pressures at work in the economy. I'm open to that argument. I think, you know, coming to a, a of a conclusion on questions as, as profound as structural elements and how lasting they're going to be is not easy. But let me just say, I'm entertaining that as a point of view. That suggests then that apropos of our earlier discussion, the last mile, so to speak, getting from something in the three range to, to something with a two handle on it in terms of US inflation, could prove to be much more difficult than the progress we've made to date. Mm. Danielle, what do you make of this discussion on whether something has structurally changed in terms of inflation pressures in the US economy? Well, one of the first lessons that is drilled into your head on day one at the Fed is uh, is about the lag effect. Mm. And, the, and, and I think I have a better appreciation for that now. Um, one of the second lessons that's drilled into your head is transmission mechanism. And if there was one element, I think, that, that differentiates itself from the first QE era 
to where we and how we saw QE unfold in the post-pandemic era. It's that the transmission mechanism was completely revolutionized. So we had never, you know, you, it, our first zero interest rate ZERP episode, we were still relying as a central bank on the banking system to act as a transmission mechanism, to be the arbiter of and determinant of credit, even at the zero bound. We still had somebody in between monetary policy and the person on the receiving end of zero interest rate policy liquidity being as cheap as it's ever been. In the post-pandemic era, we completely bypassed the Federal Reserve monetized every penny, but the banking system was bypassed. This was money directly deposited into individuals' households. This was this was helicopter money. And, and we found that when you completely bypass the banking system and change the transmission mechanism, change the means by which the liquidity is delivered, then you can really end up igniting inflation. And in a big way, and in a faster way, than we've ever been accustomed to, because most of the inflation that that the first era of QE ignited was financial asset inflation. But this time we saw inflation in every one of its forms. Mm-hmm. And now we're still living that down because there has been some talk of deglobalization, reshoring, all of these things would certainly raise inflation in the in, in the longer term if we were to bring more manufacturing back on shore. But again, my biggest takeaway from what we've just seen and our and the experience that we've had with inflation is that the I no longer need to be taught. Now I've seen it there it's, it's empirical evidence the transmission mechanism counts and it counts big time. Great point Danielle. Let's conclude with a few questions from the audience and we have a great question from William uh, surrounding this discussion on shelter costs in the inflation basket. I'd like to start with you, Danielle, and then uh, you can um, answer the question as well, Mr. Lockhart, after this. Is it feasible that the Federal Reserve will even like directly try and target housing prices, given that the shelter costs remain the stickiest component of the inflation basket? Do you, do you expect the Fed to ultimately want to see housing prices down, Danielle? Well, I certainly think that, uh, that 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 when Powell speaks of interest rate sensitive sectors and speaks directly to housing, uh, that and, and also because I think he uh, ascribes to the philosophy of Christopher Waller as well, um, who, who's on the board, I think that they know that the Fed overstepped its bounds in terms of being intrusive into the U.S. housing market. Uh, So I, I don't think that the Fed would be, or at least I don't think this Fed would be an advocate in any way, shape, or form of a price control. Um, mm. So, and I, and I think that that's sort of what's being asked here. Mm. Uh, but, but it's it's good to appreciate that that when Dennis first started, and when I was working at the Fed, there was a very thoughtful debate inside the Fed about getting mortgage rates to too low of a level and what the implications of credit easing and purchasing mortgage-backed securities as part of quantitative easing, what the long-term impact that could have on the economy, could it potentially impair mobility? And now here we are where where people are locked into such, such low mortgage rates that they indeed don't want to move. So um, I, I think that there is probably good thoughtful discussion about potentially getting rid of mortgage-backed securities QE. Hopefully the next time around doesn't even come. Yeah. I have a 
0.5% 30-year mortgage in Denmark. That is a uh, golden handcuff syndrome live here. Dennis, um, could house prices ever become an indirect de facto target of the Federal Reserve? In my experience, uh, the idea of trying to target one element either in the inflation calculation or in um, the distribution of benefits or costs within the broad economy simply is not considered. Um, it's, uh, I think the, the prevailing view then and now is that interest rate policy is simply too broad, uh, too blunt an instrument and it's not easily targetable. And with targeting, you end up with uh, unanticipated costs uh, or, or, or uh, problems elsewhere in the economy. So I, I just don't see it. Um, I think the, 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 the more realistic approach would be that they're gonna try to keep the pressure on the broad economy, broadly speaking, at a level that will also affect the shelter or housing sector in a way that is uh, constructive in, in terms of the inflation fight. We get a load of questions on both the recession risk and the ultimate timing of that pause from the Federal Reserve. So let's start with the recession risk. Hard, no landing or soft landing it's been debated uh, wildly over the past quarter or two. Danielle, what's your take here? Is a recession avoidable? So I look back to the, uh, I look back to 2000, I look back to 2007. Um, there were quite a few uh, similar debates at the time. Uh, maybe the maybe the words had changed. Maybe it was moderate outcome instead of soft landing. Uh, but I, I think we are at a juncture right now where it's very unlikely that we're, we're going to see fiscal policy directly transmitted to U.S. households, at least before the first or second quarter of 2025, after the election comes and goes. Um, and, and I think by the same token, even if investment.com reports that 62% of student loan holders are going to boycott repaying their loans starting October the 1st, I don't know about that. But even if it's just the 38% who start repaying on October the 1st, that, that is going to be a source of depleted consumption capacity. We've seen um, home equity lines of credit decrease in 2023. The first half of that, we saw fresh data out on that last, uh, last week. We were at the highest level since 2010 in terms of HELOC activity. So we're not at the margin, at the margin, again, as we've seen, the rate of companies closing increased from six in May, June, and July, now to nine per day in August. Zero states to now 48 states with rising continuing jobless claims, bankruptcies continuing, and at the fiscal level, really nothing happening, and a Federal Reserve that's not going to the zero bound anytime soon. I don't see how the confluence of events does not result in a hard landing if we were to be talking about this six months from now, we could very potentially be talking about it in the rearview mirror. Mr. Lockhart, what do you make of this discussion on, on a soft versus a hard landing? Is it feasible to hope for this soft landing? I think it depends on the time frame that you have mm. in mind in terms mm. of achievement of the inflation target. Certainly, if you believe the Atlanta Fed's GDP now, and I understand there are, there are other tracking estimates that show different numbers, 
what you see is an economy that's its growth impulse is very strong. And it is a, a full employment economy at the same time. Those are not uh, or those are not indicators of, of an imminent recession. Um, I think uh, you never rule out the possibility of recession. But if the Fed is satisfied with the pace of disinflation and is willing to be somewhat patient about it, then I think the combination of the policy stance and a sort of natural disinflation that's occurring because the economy is um, moving back into better balance between supply and demand across a variety of different sectors could very well result in uh, achievement of the, or close to achievement of the inflation target and uh, no really deep recession. Now I happen to be one who uh, is an advocate of defining what you mean by recession. And I think, you know, we can use a, a, a hurricane scale. There's a cat one recession and there's a cat five recession. I think a cat one recession is possible. That's a pretty mild recession. That comes from maybe a slight policy error of some kind or a less than perfect execution of policy shifts and such. But I don't see a cat five recession, you know, a deep, profound recession. It's certainly not the, uh, in, the, in the current circumstances. And I do think, you know, you, when we talk about the R word, we need to define what we're talking about. Um, so th those are my thoughts. Danielle, the final question we get uh, from the audience relates to this pause or potential pause from the Federal Open Market Committee. Your best assessment, have we seen the last rate hike already, yes or no? No, I think it's feasible that we're going to see one more 25 basis point, quarter percentage point, Uh, rate hike in 2023. I certainly don't think we will see it in 2024. So if it doesn't happen um, in November and less likely in December, then I don't, then, then I think the Fed is done. Mr. Lockhart, your take on the exact same question? I see one more as likely either at the September or the November meeting. After that, if you can tell me how exactly the data will evolve mm. and what the total picture looks like, which I don't know, then I can give you some indication of whether they're going to have to go further. I would not rule out that uh, the, the next phase of, of battling inflation is frustrating in various ways, and they have to go beyond one more. But I can't see that far into the future. So all I can say is in, in the relative near term, I can certainly envision one more hike. Dennis Lockhart, former member of the Federal Open Market Committee and former president of the Federal Reserve of Atlanta. Thank you very much for being with, it, with us. It was an honor to host you. Thank, thank you, Andreas. And uh, also thank you very much, uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth, founder of QI Research and uh, one of the fan favorites here at Real Vision. It's always a pleasure to host you. And uh, we just love your takes on the US economy and the Federal Reserve. Thank you again for having me. My pleasure. This was another edition of the Real Vision Deep Dives interview series. My name is Andreas Steno, and we will be back with more already tomorrow at the Real Vision platform. Thank you very much for watching.
What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.